in their Bible? Meaningless. What did you say? Fleeting. Right? Okay, vanity, meaningless, fleeting, smoke. Any, any other words? It's hard to know what to do with this word hebel, which is probably why over the past number of weeks, Lewis has stopped using any English word for it and has only been saying the Hebrew. <laughs> hebel, which is smart. I'm going to draw your attention to this sheet, and there should be a slide about this, so you don't have to remember the sheet. I don't know if you can read that, so I'll tell you what it says. It mentions that this word hebel has to do with vapor or smoke or mist or breath. It's a noun. It's a thing. Now, this is going to be a reminder for a lot of you because Lewis covered this, but it can't hurt to bring, us, bring it back to our mind. Hebel is a thing. Life is hebel, a thing. It's mist or breath or smoke. But what does that mean? Sure, you know the English now, but what is that actually saying to us? It says two things throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes. It says that like smoke, it quickly vanishes. So the word fleeting was one of the words. It's temporary, it's over soon. Picture smoke or vapor or mist. Right? It's there and then phew, suddenly gone. That's one of the main things that this word hebel means throughout all of Ecclesiastes. Oh my goodness, I, I looked at this part of life and, and it was hebel. It was just gone in an instant. Life, we're going to see in our text today, youth is hebel. It just, all of a sudden it's gone and you're not young anymore. The other meaning is like trying to look through smoke or mist, it's not terribly clear what you're seeing. It's kind of hazy. It blurs the edges. You can't quite make out in the mist. And so you see that throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Like, life is supposed to work like this. The righteous get honored and the wicked get punished. And I see the righteous die young and those who abuse their bodies and live wickedly live a long life. This is Hebel. It's, it, this is like fog. It, it, I can't see this clearly. This doesn't make sense to me. Those two meanings. It is over fast and it is blurry and confusing. Now, I, I want to be very critical for a moment because this is important for our understanding. The word meaningless that a lot of our Bibles translate it. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. I, I hate to say it, but you need, just need to scratch that out. Remember, God inspired the Hebrew, so scratching out the English is not a sin. Scratch it out because the whole book of, of, uh, of Ecclesiastes is very clear that there is meaning everywhere and in everything. Nothing that he talks about is without meaning. There is no aspect of life that doesn't have meaning. He's very clear to highlight that God has made everything beautiful in its proper time and place. There's meaning in that. Yeah, sure, wisdom doesn't 
always guarantee a long life, but he says wisdom is better than folly. There's meaning in wisdom, though it is maybe fleeting and confusing, but it's not without meaning. So, if you see the word meaningless, at least in your mind, retranslate it as something like foggy. I think that might be the best word, actually, to capture it, foggy. Because in our life, fog is both quickly gone and hard to see through and confusing. Another word is vanity. So in the ESV, it says vanity. Vanity means without purpose, empty, pointless. It's similar to meaningless. And again, that's very contrary to what the author in in Ecclesiastes is actually saying. It's not that life is without purpose. It's not that life is empty. In fact, God has invested this life with tons of purpose. So it's not actually vain. But it is quickly vanishing and it is very confusing. So remember the word fog. I'm going to plug that in when we read our passage. Okay, so this is still the the, the quiz to catch us up on Ecclesiastes. You you know the language this was written in. You know his favorite word. You know how many times it occurred. You know what it means and what it doesn't mean. What do you think about this? Is the preacher in Ecclesiastes, and I still haven't found it in here. It's hard to do two things at once for me. Okay, I was in Isaiah and I couldn't figure out where the word fleeting was. Ecclesiastes, I got it. Is the preacher mainly condemning life under the sun or commending life under the sun throughout this book? Shout out what you think, knowing that this is a trick question. Is the preacher mainly condemning life under the sun, everything that we see, or is he mainly commending this life under the sun? Yes. Maybe I should not have given the hint that this was a trick question. Explain the yes. Who said that? Both. He's condemning it and commending it. Does anybody want to take Kevin up on that? Challenge him? How about this? I'll put another edge to it. Is the preacher mainly giving a tone of depression or a tone of joy? In this, in this book. The whole book, is it mainly the tone of depression or the tone of joy? What was that? I, I can't hear that, but I'm sure it's very profound. And you probably said both, right? <laughs> no. It feels very depressing, if I'm going to be quite frank. Uh, overwhelmingly depressing. Except that the more I dig into it, the less convinced I am that that's true. I mean, the the very tagline, fog of fogs, the teacher says, fog of fogs, everything is fog. That's very depressing, it seems. But there's something more in this book that I want to highlight to you that's all over the place, but so easy to miss. The author the preacher, goes through a rhythm. I have Ecclesiastes printed out on paper, 
and I've broken it up and organized it and color-coded it and written notes. Uh, I commend something like this to you. One thing that I see when I do it this way and I work through Ecclesiastes is that he has a three-fold rhythm that he does repeatedly over and over throughout this book. He observes something. He usually uses a phrase like, um, I applied my mind to study this, or I turned and I saw this under the sun. So he observes something, and he elaborates on it. Then he, then he specifies something that he's learned. And sometimes it's, ooh, this is fog. Or, why pursue this? And so he, he's observed how things work, he, he says something he's learned, and then he concludes something that's a challenge to us. Therefore, do this. And then he repeats that. I turned and I saw something else under the sun. And he learned this. Therefore, do this. It's a pattern over and over. And let me read to you the therefores. Okay? The pattern, the, the, the conclusion. So he he turns his mind to certain things, and he concludes in chapter three, ver- sorry, chapter two, verse twenty-four and twenty-five. This too is fog. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from God's hand. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So then he turns to something else. He observes, he mentions what he's learned about it, that God has made everything beautiful in its own time. And then he concludes, makes a second conclusion in chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each one of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is God's gift. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. God does that so that people will fear Him. See, there's meaning in life. God's doing something so that people will fear Him. Whatever is has already been, whatever will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. So that's a conclusion. People can do nothing better than eat and enjoy their work. It's a gift of God. Same conclusion as the first one. Then he, t- he says, I saw something else under the sun. And he elaborates, and then he gives a conclusion in chapter 3, verse 22. So, I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. Then it says, again, I looked and saw and he observed something else. He mentions things that he learned. This goes on for quite a while. He saw more, he learned more. He saw more, he learned more. It's fog, it's fog. And then he concludes in chapter verses 18 to 20. This is what I've observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toil, toilsome labor under the sun, 
during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, it's a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Sounds similar. Then he turns his attention, says, I've seen another evil under the sun. This is fog. He sees something else. It's fog. He sees something else. Fog. Fog. More fog. Yep, more fog. This is fog too. This too is fog. Oh, but now comes another conclusion. Well, what do you do? In chapter 8, verse 15. So, I commend the enjoyment of life. Because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. The joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. This this life under the sun is a gift of God for them to enjoy. Then I reflected on this, and he learned more. Death overtakes everyone. Doesn't matter what they do in life. They're going to die. He observes more. Oh, he has another conclusion in, what is this, Uh, chapter 9, verse 7 to 10. See if this sounds familiar. What does he conclude? Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this fog that God has given you under the sun, all your fog days. For this is your lot in life, and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there's neither working nor planning, nor knowledge nor wisdom. So, in this life that God has given us under the sun, do it with all our might and enjoy. Oh, I see something else under the sun. And he elaborates. I learned something. Wisdom is better than strength. I learned more. There's, uh, there's more evil under the sun. There's more fog. Ah, and then we come to our passage for this morning. And our passage is the last conclusion. He's already had a number of conclusions that have said basically the same thing over and over. God-centered enjoyment of life in this gift he's given us under the sun. And this seventh is... Our passage, chapter 11, verses 7 to 10. Let me read this to you, and then I'm going to ask the kids a question. So kids, get ready. I'll ask you a question after I read this passage. Chapter 11, verses 7 to 10. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eye to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is fog. You who are young, be happy while you're young. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. 
So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are fog. Okay, this raises a question to me. How does this work exactly? What do we get from Ecclesiastes? Kids, I told you I'd ask you a question. Raise your hand if you're a child. Okay, you ready for this? How many times did the writer, the preacher, say to enjoy life that God has given? I gave a hint earlier. I didn't mean to. It kind of slipped out. All right, I want you to count. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read them all again, but I'm going to give you the pattern. Okay? So he sees that everything is fog, foggy, foggy. I see fog, more fog, more fog, more fog, foggy, foggy, foggy. And then he says, therefore, enjoy, 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 enjoy. How many times was that? Somebody shout it out. If you're under 15 years old, you can shout it out. What's that? Seven. What else? Eight. Very tricky. I'm going to do it again. Enjoy, 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 enjoy. Seven times. Now, isn't that interesting? If you've been reading uh, Old Testament books, if you know a little bit about how Hebrew poetry works, you'll recognize that repeating something seven times is a symbol of perfection. It's, it's perfect. And usually the seventh is like a, a step up. It's like a climax. And that's exactly what we see here. All six times he concludes, enjoy life. It's the gift of God in this life he's given you under the sun. The seventh time, he says it again, but he adds some complexity. It's like it's the climax that is the most rich and, and balanced, more than any of the others before. Let me show you what I mean by that. So keep your, keep your Bible to, open to chapter 11, verse 7 to 10, and notice that it has a few different sections it actually has, it has one statement, light is sweet, and it pleases the eye to see the sun. It's beautiful. Then, it has three sections, and all of them are strikingly balanced with enjoyment, but yet remember the fog. He's not done that in the other six times he's concluded. This is something that right at the end of the book, he's kind of bringing back this point to enjoy life God's given, but he's also bringing back in all of his points about the fogginess of life. And he smashes them together in this final climax conclusion to the book. But before we look briefly at those, I, I want to I highlight the reason the, the preacher can say this. These seem like two things that don't go together. I see so much fog and confusion and evil and more fog in this life, therefore enjoy life. How can you say both of those things? How do those go together? The, the worldview that the preacher has that bubbles up everywhere, the way that he looks at reality has three parts to it. 
that you see over and over. One of them is that we are living under the sun in what you could call, and Pastor Lou has called it, a Genesis 3 world. All right? That's the nature of the world out here. It is broken and full of sin. It is a Genesis 3 fallen world. So everything in this book is complicated and parts are evil and parts don't make sense and there's wickedness and injustice. Everything's foggy. Well, he can say all that because he's honest at what he sees in this Genesis 3 world. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't say, well, everything's okay because I know God. No, things are broken, dysfunctional, painful, unjust, and they don't make sense much of the time. That's living in a Genesis 3 world. Everything's foggy, fleeting, disappears, and doesn't make sense. But that's not the only part of his worldview. He also has a Genesis 1 and 2 worldview. God created this world beautiful, and the fall does not abolish, eradicate, and wipe all of that out. There is so much beauty in this world because of how God created it in Genesis 1 and 2. This gives rise to him talking about enjoy, eating, drinking, your work. There's so much beauty to enjoy. It is God's gift. So hold these together. We're not only in a Genesis 3 world. We're also in a Genesis 1 and 2 world where there is beauty and significant problems, where it is foggy, but there is tons of enjoyment, and properly so. But there's a third. Remember I said there are three parts? Not only are we in a Genesis 3 world that is foggy, and in a Genesis 1 and 2 world that is beautiful, but over and over, the preacher says God is acting in this world all the time. Throughout the entire book, you should go through and, and circle everything that God does. It'll take you a while because God does a lot. Under the sun, God is giving meaning. He talks about we don't understand all the works that God has done. So we live in a fallen, broken, foggy world. We live in a beautiful world, and we live in a world under the sun where God is present and acting all the time. Put those all together, and you have a very profoundly honest, complex book called Ecclesiastes that is hard to understand but has more joy in it than probably any of us realized. So take a look at it now with that worldview in mind, with his, the way he writes the entire book. Look now at, at the specific passage that we've read, verses 7 to 10 in chapter 11. He's already highlighted beauty. Light is sweet. It pleases the eye to see the sun. Now he's going to give three balanced commands to us. And kids, I want you to help me with this. Okay? So listen carefully. He says in verse 8, However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. Okay. Kids, shout out a few things in this life that are beautiful and enjoyable. I'll, I'll say one, pie. I absolutely love pie. And I'll say another one, family. 
I love it when I see my kids smile and laugh. Those things are beautiful and enjoyable. All right, kids, what are some things that you think are beautiful and enjoyable? Books. All right. What else? Butterflies. Yes. They're amazing. God created them so perfectly. What else? Roller skating. That was a much more deeper voice than I was expecting. But roller skating is amazing. The wind blowing in your hair, the stomach lurching into your throat when you twirl too many times. Beautiful. What else? Rats? Friends! Ha! I will tell you though, rats are actually pretty amazing too, but don't hang out with them as closely as your friends. Friends are beautiful and enjoyable. What else? Adults, you can chip in too. Baseball. That sound when you swing and you, you hit the sweet spot and you know that ball's going to go a long way. Woo! I don't know that experience. I've heard. What else is beautiful? Did, I, did you say Legos? Yes. Legos. Sunsets. Keep shouting stuff out. Enjoyable. Music. Definitely. Babies. Especially with the really pudgy cheeks that you can kind of munch on. Yeah, like Eden over there. I, I don't see her, but... She's got cheeks. I bet you enjoy her beautiful cheeks. Yes. What's that? The Bible. It's beautiful. Yeah, and enjoyable. Tomatoes. Fried green ones or just the plump red ones? Okay. That says where you've lived in this, in this uh, country. There's so, we could just keep on going, and that would be really good to keep on going. But we're not going to right now. I do commend carrying that conversation on with people when you walk out of here. Talk about more. I mean, it says, however many years you live, let them, let people enjoy them all. Talk about the food, the drinks, the work that you love that are enjoyable. But, oh, here's the other side of this. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is fog. You see, a lot of people in this world only try to enjoy things, and they turn a blind eye to the myriad problems there are in this world, both that are coming into their own life and that are just around them all the time. Systemic injustice, sicknesses, dementia that ravages the mind. There's so many foggy things in this world, and and they are coming. So if you only try to enjoy life and are not honest with yourself and with each other about the significant fog that will come in the days of darkness, you're not living a very biblical life, and it's not healthy. Simultaneously, if you're only contemplating the fog, the the things that don't make sense, that disappear quickly, oh well, woe is me, Uh, this brief moment of joy is going to end, that you don't enjoy these things, you're also not living a wise biblical life. So he brings them, he crashes them together in this one statement here at the end, the climax. And then he does it again in verse 9. You who are young, so raise your hands if you're young. All right. Also, now raise your hands if you are younger than death. Okay? You'll see that that's probably applicable. 
You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your hearts and the sight of your eyes. Beautiful. When you're young, you have so many ideas. Your heart pulls you. You have desires and impulses to do lots of things. And that's a great gift from God. In fact, a lot of elderly people that I've talked to, when they've been in a room with lots of younger people, talk about, oh, I miss that vigor. Just that life that's bubbling out of them. That the passions of their heart, they see things that I don't see anymore. This is a gorgeous thing. And he says it. Be happy while you're young. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But, okay, here's the other side. This is the complexity that the whole book is bringing before us. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Whoa. <laughs> what does that mean? It might sound like, yeah, go ahead and enjoy yourself, but God's going to condemn you. Did anybody think it kind of sounded like that? Yeah? At least one honest person or two? Yeah? I'm glad if it didn't sound like that to you, because that's not what it actually means. Think about judgment. God is going to bring you into judgment for what you do. Specifically for the things that are giving you pleasure, joy, delight of your heart. Judgment is not only bad. It's not only condemnation. It's also commendation. A judge commends and rewards good things and punishes and holds accountable bad things. Judgment is both of these. It's not only the one. In fact, in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 17, he's already said, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. So there's righteous and wicked, and he's going to judge each appropriately. Also, he's about to say in chapter 12, right at the end, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. So you see, the way that the author, the, the preacher's thinking about judgment is God's going to He's going to judge. He's going to give what is due to good things and to bad things. So this is both a guard and a motivation. It's a guard because if your heart ever prompts you and your eyes prompt you to, to pursue something that you might be passionate about but is simply inappropriate, sinful, and unwise, God is going to hold you to account for that, for that evil. So that will guard us. We don't just pursue everything that our heart desires. However, God's also going to commend good enjoyment of what is supposed to be enjoyed. So this is motivating. Follow your heart's desire and what your eyes see, is what it says here, in the good things, and God is going to commend those in the end. Pursue it. So if God gives you a gift to enjoy and you don't enjoy it, and you stand in front of him, he's actually going to hold you accountable for that. Why did you not enjoy the good gift that I put right in front of you? But not just negatively, if he gave you a good gift, 
and you pursued it and you enjoyed it in thankfulness and you're going to stand before him and he's going to say, well done. Did everybody see that? That was exactly right. You enjoyed what I gave you to enjoy. So God being the judge of everything will both guard you as you pursue your heart and eyes and will motivate you. Enjoy knowing that God will bring you into judgment. Now look at the third thing. He says the same basic thing again. Verse 10. So then, banish anxiety from your heart. Cast off the troubles of your body. He's talking to young people in particular. But again, we're about to see that that probably means anybody younger than death. But especially physically young people. When your bodies function well, cast off the anxieties and the problems of the body while you're young because youth and vigor are fog. They are going to disappear. You won't be able to do these things at some point. In fact, they're like a fog that disappears pretty quickly. So enjoy them. They're gifts, God's gift. That's a really balanced view of life, in my opinion. It pushes us to enjoy what is good, and it pushes us to be very careful and to remember with clarity that there's a lot of problems in this world. The preacher finally draws our attention to an extra climax. So what we just looked at that passage, is the, the seventh of the seven conclusions. It's kind of the climactic conclusion of enjoy life because that's God's gift. But then, if he were carrying on the pattern, after concluding that I'm going to observe something else and learn something else and conclude something else, he doesn't do that. He stops and he does something he hasn't done before. He pauses and tells you to do something and then gives a tremendous poem. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. But before we read that, I want to put something on the screen that's applicable here. Um, can you go one slide forward? He's about to, the, the preacher is about to make us contemplate age. Aging getting older until the very end. And this is something that's been on our radar the past week all around the world with this thing called FaceApp, where it can make you look older. And it's fascinating. Everybody's posting pictures of themselves on Facebook or wherever uh, looking older. And it's so interesting. Aging can be very interesting to think about. Uh, so maybe make me age a little bit more. So now I know what I'm going to look like when I'm getting toward the end of life, after these days of vigor are gone. You know, my sister saw some pictures and she said, Jonathan, you look like Donald Sutherland, or you will. So sh show Donald Sutherland and put the next one up. I mean, there may be something to this. Aging can be very interesting. In fact, I have some other examples of aging, and I'm going to come down here so I can see them well. Next one. 
is you use the word beautiful to describe yourself at family camp, and I'm, you're going to be a beautiful old man, I think. Aging takes its toll. We all know that Toph is probably going to change his hairstyle when he gets older than that, so what's the next one? But also, if Toph is aging, his children are probably aging too. That's a little bit weird. But not only are his children aging, mine are aging. What's the next picture? There's Anya. Lydia's not really aging, although we can make her age, and maybe even more. The age is really fun. Although one thing that this face app draws to our attention is that that's an incredibly shallow view of aging. It's really fun when you can see what it might look like at a distance without actually experiencing some of the issues. Now, before I mention some of those issues, aging is a really good thing in many ways. For example, usually older people are wiser and make wiser decisions. That's not always the case, but in general, it is a good thing to age and gain experience. Uh, I was having my hair cut uh, from my barber uh, a month ago, and I was bushy everywhere, and he just chopped it all off, and I looked down at my lap, and I saw all this gray hair that I'm trying to work out. I've got two streaks. And I'm trying to bring that out. And I told Jamel, I said, you just cut off all of the wisdom that I'm trying to portray to people. And Jamel said, well, maybe if you say more profound things, that'll help. That's touche. Good point. So there are good things about age. And I, I can't stand it, if I'm frank again. I can't stand it when people um, try, to, try to get away from aging when they try to present themselves as, as younger than they really are, and they won't tell you their age because they want to appear and seem younger. They don't want to be the age that they are. Uh, because aging is really actually a, a gift from God. And when we buy into our culture's cult of youth, it causes a lot of damage. And it really should take Christians who understand the Creator to celebrate white hair. So let's contemplate that, that aging is God's gift, but at the same time, more to the point of Ecclesiastes, there are issues that come with age. Your body stops working well. Sometimes your mind stops working well, and it's a terrifying experience. And it's hard on the family and the friends. And you know it's hard on the family and friends, and it's embarrassing to have your wife or your child wipe you and put a new diaper on you and to be aware of that or to know I don't know who I am I, I, I understand that I'm confused I don't know you I don't know you I don't even know who I am anymore which some people experiencing Alzheimer's or dementia are aware and frustrated that they can't remember anything and you walk along and and you bend down to tie your shoe and you start standing up and it's really hard to get back up. Or like my father experienced recently, he tripped and he tried to put his foot down to catch himself but his leg was not as strong as it used to be and he just went down. He did not have the strength 
to hold himself up anymore uh, in such a situation, and he hurt himself when he knew early in life, no problem. So it gets a little scary to age. In fact, a lot of these aspects of aging that I've just mentioned, the preacher is going to finish off with in a, a beautiful poem. You could even call it a breathtaking poem, because at the end, the very breath from humans have been taken. A breathtaking poem about aging to death. And I'm going to read it in just a moment. We're not really going to explore the meaning, because most of it is relatively clear that this is about everything falling apart until it is thoroughly broken and dust. But this is what he says before the poem. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember your creator. It does not say, remember all of the created gifts you've received. The rest of the book has talked about those. Enjoy them. But here at the end, he calls attention to a very personal thing. Remember the creator himself. So this idea of enjoying food, drink, and your work is not the atheistic idea of carpe diem. Seize the day. Just enjoy it because you only live once with no reference to God. It's obviously not that. But it's also not the normal Christian idea that kind of baptizes that idea with God talk. Uh, Well, this gift is from God, and so I'm going to make a list of, of many things to be thankful for, but when you look at their list, yeah, sure, those are gifts, but there's no mention to the giver. Yeah, they kind of tilted their hat to the giver. God gave me these, but when they actually think about them and talk about them, they're not really thinking about the giver as much as the thing that they've received and are grateful for. This, remember the creator himself, is I think more profound and can be practiced practically. So whenever you talk about, I'm thankful for family, I'm thankful for pie or butterflies, why not make it a habit of talking about, I'm thankful that God has created my daughter Lydia, my daughter Anya, and my wife Lindsay. I'm thankful that God has knit us together in a family. I'm thankful that God has masterfully created butterflies and that God has created not only the apples for apple pie and the cassia plant for cinnamon, but he's created humans with the capacity to be creative and put things together in a beautiful way. I'm thankful for the creator doing all these things. Can you see the difference? That's not just focusing on the gift itself, which easily can can pull away from God. It's focusing on the giver, the creator as a relationship. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. When? Remember him when? Right at the end? After I've had my fun? Well, remember him before. Before you die. Probably Remember him in everything. Remember him when you're young. So not just right before you die, but remember him when you're young. 
And now this is what he says to kind of draw our attention to this somber note that's been ringing through the whole book, that you are going to die. I am going to die. Our youth is going to end like fog, blown away. It won't be there anymore. Nobody will remember us or our work. Before that happens, remember your Creator. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop. When the grinders cease because they're few, and those looking through the window grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed, and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire no longer is stirred because people go to their eternal home and mourners go about in the streets before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Before that happens, kids, raise your hands if you're a child. Before you leave your youth, before you get older, remember your creator in everything you do. So when you're offering to water the plants of your neighbor down the street, or when you're doing your homework, remember that the creator made math. He made poetry. The creator made the plants and the water that you're using to help your neighbor. When you're playing and you hear your friend laugh, remember that the creator made that friend and made laughter. And those of us who are younger than death, no matter how close or far away, remember your creator before Everything falls apart. This reminds me of the statement in the New Testament, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. Whatever you're doing, whether you're eating or drinking or whatever you do, give glory to God. That's in the New Testament too. Could have been in Ecclesiastes. Fix your eyes on Jesus no matter what you're doing. Be you young, be you middle-aged, be you old. Before everything cracks, breaks, and is left in a desolate ghost town, fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember your Creator in everything. Let me wrap things up by mentioning that Although we are called to remember our Creator, our hope 
is not actually in our ability to remember. In fact, our hope is not even built on us escaping life under the sun and going to heaven. Our ultimate hope is built on Jesus himself remembering us. Like he says in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 39 to 40 to 40. Jesus says what his mission is. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Our ultimate hope is that Jesus himself will remember us, those who trust him, and on the last day, raise our bodies to glorious, perfect bodies in a new earth. That's where our ultimate hope lies. A day will come when we will no longer live in the fog. Because a day is coming when there will not even be a sun to live under or over. In Revelation, right at the end, picture what is going to happen and what our hope is. At the end, when Jesus has conquered and returned, I saw no temple in this city, this new Jerusalem that's come down on the new earth. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty One, and the Lamb, Jesus. And the city had no need of a sun or a moon or to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb Himself. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Our hope is in the day when there is no sun, because Jesus and the Father are with us in so much intensity and perfection that they light up the universe in our resurrected bodies, new earth, with no pain, no suffering, no injustice, no fog whatsoever. So before we crumple and die, and before Jesus comes back, remember your Creator, who is the Lord Jesus Himself. In everything you do, enjoy the life that your Creator has given you in Jesus' name. Father in heaven, we need you to give us insights into these mysteries of life and of your book, Ecclesiastes. Please turn our hearts to an eternal hope in your son, Jesus, who brings to completion the enjoyment that Ecclesiastes put before our eyes. And now please equip us to help each other mature in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.